All right, well, before we get into uh, our scripture tonight, I wanted to give something uh, of an exhortation uh, to you all. Um, and forgive me if this doesn't come off right. Um, but I'll, I'll start by saying uh, I'm going to address the guys in here. So you guys, um, you guys are the leaders. You guys, you guys are the leaders. To you men in here, it's, it's to you that the Lord has given uh, the responsibility of leadership. Everywhere that you go, you're a leader. Ephesians 5:22 and 23, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Colossians 3:18, it says, Wives, be subject to who? To your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. 1 Peter 3, 1. Peter says, You wives, be submissive to your own husbands. These scriptures, they all point to the fact that men and husbands are to be the leaders. And ladies, does this go against the, the ideology of feminism that is so uh, widely preached today? Yes, good, it should. The word of God and the truths that are contained within it, it should be in opposition to what the world says is the right thing to do. The word also says that you're not to have sex before you get married. As a single unsaved man, I hated that. I don't like that. Good, good thing that it says that because the word of God and the truths that it contains should go against what we believed to be true as unsafe people. But notice that in these verses, there isn't a value judgment being placed on men and women. It's simply roles that are being placed on men and women. And the role of the man, again, men, the role of the man is the leader. So why am I talking about this? Well, last week, uh, I wasn't here because uh, my grandfather, he passed away, so I went to his funeral last Friday. And so Pastor Brenton filled in. And uh, during our staff meeting this week, uh, Pastor Brenton, he... Uh, he, he wanted to make sure he gave me, like, kudos. Like, he wanted to, to give me some kudos. Well, not to me. He wanted to give a specific group some kudos because of what he saw last Friday. And he was saying that after the service, after, after last week's service, he was like, man, those girls stepped up. Those girls stepped up. There was, like, six or seven of them in the bathroom. They were cleaning. They were scrubbing the toilets. They were cleaning the sinks, everything. They were getting it done. And then he's like, but it wasn't the same for the guys. Like, there was only, like, two of them, only, only about two guys that had stepped up. And, of course, Pastor Brenton stepped up as well. He started cleaning. Well, what does this have to do with being a leader? Everything. Husbands are to love their wives the way that Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. He served her. Being a leader is not about how can I tell someone what to do. It's not how can I appear like a leader. It's not about being great being a leader in the truest sense, Christ being our ultimate example, is being a servant. Listen to this quote. It's from a book called Spiritual Leadership. I recommend you guys read it. Spiritual Leadership. It says, true greatness, true leadership is found in giving yourself in service to others, not in coaxing or inducing others to serve you. True service is never without its cost. Often it comes with a bitter cup of challenges. For genuine godly leadership weighs carefully Jesus' question, can you drink the cup that I'm to drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized with? The real spiritual leader is focused on the service he can render to God and other people, not on the residuals and the perks of high office or holy title. We must aim to put more into life than we take out, end quote. To be a leader is to be a servant. And to be a servant is to actually serve. Moses was the leader of the children of Israel. Clearly, he was. 
And when the Lord would refer to Moses, he wouldn't say, Moses, the leader of my people. He would say, Moses, my servant. At the Passover, at, at the final Passover that Jesus had attended, he went, he grabbed a towel, he grabbed a basin full of water, and he got down and he started washing his disciples' nasty feet. That was the work of a slave. The slaves were the ones that went down and started scrubbing the feet of the people that came into the house. But here you have the Lord of all creation, the king of the universe, stepping down and making himself a servant. But when, when Pastor Brenton told me, you know, what he told me, like, it hit me. It hit me. And not in a good way. Not in a good way. I'm explaining to you why. In, in my 10 plus years, I've been walking, how long have I been walking? It's probably like 20 years old. So almost 15 years of walking with the Lord. Um, and, you know, I've, I've spoken to older men about this. There's been this pattern. And uh, it's not a good pattern. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of good, but it's kind of not. The pattern is that women are typically the ones who step up the most in the church. That's something that I've noticed in, in the, the amount of time that I spent in, in the body. Women are typically the ones who are more devoted to the Lord. Women are typically the ones that are more studious of the word. And that's been, you know, it's been true in my own marriage. My wife has outdone me so many times in her devotion to the Lord. It's embarrassing. But when the Lord placed me here over this ministry, the ministry began to grow. And the opposite of what was typical is what I saw. You know, the men were the ones that were stepping up. The men were the ones who were serving. The men were the ones that seemed to be more devoted to the Lord. The men were the ones that seemed to be more studious of the word, trying to understand God's word and apply it. And that's a good thing because, as I've said, men have been called to be the leaders. And I'm not saying, ladies, you need to calm down. You're making the men look bad. Not at all. I'm saying, guys, you need to step your game up. Guys, you need to step your game up. Don't come up in here claiming to be a man. But the women are outdoing you in service. Ladies, find you a man who's going to outdo you in service. Find you a man who's like Tony. You guys know Tony, right? Not Tony, like not Tony, Tony, like he's married, he's taken. But find you a man like Tony. And I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. I hope he listens to this. I'm not going to tell him what I said. I'm going to, I'm going to wait. I'm going to see if he listens to this on, on, on the podcast. Um, but we had a memorial service here a few weeks ago. And um, it was on a Saturday. And a few, a, few, a few of you guys came out to support uh, the family. And uh, so after the service, everyone's gone. And it's just, you know, the pastors, were the, you know, we're cleaning up, you know, because, you know, this place got trashed. And so, you know, we're cleaning up the bathrooms. And then Tony and Renee are walking by. And, you know, Tony, Tony and Renee, they look in the bathroom. And me and Pastor Kevin are in there. And he's like, all right, see you, pastors. And we're like, oh, yeah, for sure. Thank, oh, thanks for coming, all that stuff. And then we get right back to it. And, but he, they don't leave right away. And then I hear Tony start to whisper things to Renee. I don't know what he was saying. I can imagine what he was saying, but it's just like, and the next thing I know, he's in the bathroom standing next to me, and he's like, all right, when needs to get done? And I'm like, no, no, we're cool, we got it. He's like, no, when needs to get done? Let's, let's do it. Ladies, don't bother with the cute face. Don't bother with the charming words. If he ain't willing to postpone the conversation with you for a few minutes to go and serve the Lord. Don't bother with that. If he's not willing to, to serve the Lord, what makes you think he's going to be willing to serve you? The Lord is greater than you. The Lord has done far more for him than you. So you, you need to have a standard, ladies. You need to have a standard that if you ain't willing to serve God, then you can go ahead and take your cheesy, creepy pickup lines elsewhere. I'm not interested. I'm just saying, some of y'all need to know. Like, you need to work on your, your conversation skills. Some of y'all are real awkward. <laughs> The loudest laugher was the most awkward. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, you know, the other night I came home from work. This is my work. Uh, the other night I came home, and uh, my wife, she, you know, she, she cooks dinner. And um, actually, that's not the point. Uh, 
I don't know why I mentioned that. I think I'm just like, dude, my wife cooks me dinner. That's awesome. Um, but uh, so yeah, I get home with my wife, and you know, we, we go through the, the whole routine. We put the kids to sleep, and like, we didn't put them to sleep. Like, we, we put them in their bed, and so yeah, just that sounded off. But no, you know, we put them down. No, we didn't put them down. We they went to bed. <laughs> so, and so then we, uh, you know, we're about to get our night started. Actually, we're about to shut down our night because it's like uh, nine o'clock. We can go to sleep early, and so. Um, uh, my wife is about to start her nightly routine of, you know, washing up and brushing teeth and all that stuff. And as she's heading towards the bathroom, she looks at the kitchen and she realizes, like, oh, man, I didn't clean up, uh, I didn't clean up Elise's stuff. My, my daughter, Elise, she's uh, 10 months old, 11 months old. I don't know. Ask my wife. But she's a baby. And so, you know, she eats in a high chair and, and she makes a mess, my daughter. She's a, she's, she's, she's a savage. Like, if she's, if she's done with what you're giving her or if she's not happy with the way that you're giving it to her, like, she'll grab it and then she'll just, like, toss the food off the, the high chair and, like, she'll look at, like, she'll look at, she'll be like, mm. And then it just falls. And, and you know, and I try to, I'm, I'm, you know, trying to establish the, the discipline and I'll go up to her, like, in, you know, in, in baby in, in a way that she'll understand, like, Elise, you don't throw food on the floor. And then she'll be like, and it was just like, you little runt. But anyway, so, um, so it's messy. And my wife is like, ah, I forgot. Like, you know what? I'm going to go to the bathroom and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean it up. Don't worry about it. And, you know, a lot of guys would probably be like, yeah, that's right, woman. Like, I expect this house to be clean when I get home and you didn't do your job. So, yeah, once you're done with the bathroom, get to it. And, you know, part of me was like, yeah, you know, yeah, she could do it. I'm just going to go sit down. But then I was like, no, dude, like, you need to serve your wife. So, you know, I did my thing, and I, and I cleaned it up, and then my wife comes out. She's like, wait, what are you doing? I was like, yeah, I'm cleaning up. She's like, no, I told you I was going to do it. I was like, I'm serving you, woman. I have to be an example. No, I didn't say that. But anyway, the point of me sharing that is that, you know, sometimes it's a battle. Sometimes it is a battle. But you need to fight that battle, gentlemen, and you need to win. You need to win that battle. So, men, you want to be a leader. You want to have the respect from your wife. You want her to submit to your leadership. Be a servant. Wash them dishes. Do that laundry. Clean that house. Serve her. Serve her. And ladies, you want to know if he's going to be that leader, that leader that serves? Watch him. Watch him as he serves the Lord. Watch him when he thinks no one else is watching and see what he does. See how he behaves. Observe it. Little tip. If he's prioritizing time with you above time with the Lord and serving the Lord, then what makes you think that he's not going to prioritize time with something else or someone else above you in the future? If the Lord isn't that valuable to him, the creator of all the earth, the, self, the, the savior of his soul, if he's not valuable enough in his eyes, in this man's eyes, to postpone just a little bit of time with you so that he can serve the Lord, then what makes you think that you're going to be that much more valuable? And I would have something for the ladies, but you know, we're all out of time, so maybe I'll get you guys another time. But I'll end with this. I'll end this, this little segment with this, and then we'll get into our, our study. Uh, John MacArthur wrote this. He said, right worship is always and must be the only basis for right giving and right learning and right service. Giving that is generous, but done apart from a loving relationship with God is empty giving. Learning that is orthodox and biblical, but is learned apart from knowing and depending on the source of truth is empty knowledge, like that of the priests and the scribes. Service that is demanding and sacrificial, but done in the power of the flesh or for the praise of men or for the impressing of others is empty service. And I'll end with that. So with all that said, I apologize if I stepped on some toes. Um, you know, but I just, I want you guys to know. I want you guys to know the truth. I hope that you guys understand that everything that I ever say is always rooted in a love for you guys and a desire for, for, for all of us to grow in maturity just so that we can stop being children. We can move on to meet, so we can move on to maturity in the Lord. But anyway, 
Let's get back to the Gospel of Matthew. Let's get back to the Gospel of Matthew. It's been a minute, but we're currently in Matthew chapter 2. And two weeks ago, um, we were so deep in Matthew chapter 2 that we ended up in Luke chapter 2. I don't know if you guys remember that. Did anybody happen to catch that documentary I was talking about? I was talking about the race car driver, you know, and then he ends up in this, in this small town called Radiator Springs. It's a really good documentary. You guys should check it out if you haven't, if you haven't seen it. Lightning McQueen, you know, Doc Hudson. There's this guy named Guido in there. He's awesome. Uh, but last week, we had an early Christmas, as, or not last week, but two weeks ago. We had an early Christmas as we looked at the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. And we're, gonna, we're actually going to continue in Luke chapter 2 for a few verses uh, before we head back to Matthew. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, that's where we're going to be. If you take notes, I hope you're taking notes. Um, and I hope maybe even you're even listening to these studies over again, passing them along to other people. Uh, not, even, not because like, oh, it's me and I want to get famous. I don't care about that. Um, the Lord has really been speaking to me lately about my position here. And it's just been an awesome revelation from the Lord. It's just like, dude, I am, I am just an instrument. I, I, am, I am just an instrument in the hands of God. Like, just because I'm up here means nothing. Like, this is where God has placed me in the body in the same way that God has a place for everybody else in the body. So all I am is just a body part. I'm just an instrument that I'm, I'm just, okay, Lord, this is where you want me? Cool. Help me to do this. Help me to do this part. Help me to play this instrument faithfully. And that's all I want. And so if, the, if, if, if you are blessed by these studies, if you're blessed by zeal, which I'm assuming if, you, if you're coming out here every week, I'm assuming you are, then, you know, share it with people. You know, if you guys are on Instagramming or following us, re, what do you call it? Re, repost the stuff and, and retweet and re, refried beans, all that. Like, just share it with people. If it's blessed you, bless others. If, if a message you've heard is like, oh man, that's, this person that I know could really hear this, send it to them. Maybe they won't ever listen to it, but at least, man, at least, hey, I think it's going to bless you. Listen to this. And if they do, great. If not, oh well, whatever. Anyway, uh, the title of tonight's message is uh, it's called It's Eager or Troubled. Eager or Troubled. And we're going to be looking at two points tonight. It's going to be kind of a short message, I hope. We'll see. Uh, but we're going to be looking at two points. The first point is God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. And point number two is losing what doesn't belong to you. Losing what doesn't belong to you. So let's look at Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. As we begin our first point, God doesn't need your money. And so Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, and it says this. And when eight days had passed, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So last message, we talked about Jesus was born, and the shepherds came out to see Jesus. Um, and so here we have this, this little portion. And in the Old Testament, uh, after a woman gave birth, she was considered to be ceremonially unclean. She was ceremonially unclean. She had to remain in her uncleanness uh, for seven days. And then if she had a boy, he was to be circumcised on the eighth day. And then she would continue to be in her uncleanness uh, for another 33 days. Uh, she wouldn't be allowed to touch anything holy, touch anything sacred. And she wouldn't be allowed to go into the temple. And some say that this period of uncleanness... Um, it was to highlight the fact that even though there's great joy when a new life enters the world, um, there's this reminder that every new life that enters into the world, although very joyous, is already stained with sin. There's already an uncleanness. Every single person that enters this world enters unclean. And so they say that that's kind of a reminder of that, that they're stained by what they've inherited from Adam and Eve. And so after this period of uncleanness, she was to present a one-year-old lamb, according to the law, and a pigeon, to sacrifice in order to atone for her uncleanness. Uh, but the law also says that if you can't afford a lamb, then you can offer up two turtle doves or two young pigeons. 
And what does Luke say that Mary offered? Well, it says that she offered up two turtle doves or two young pigeons, according to verse 24. So Mary and Joseph were poor. They couldn't afford the sacrifice of a lamb. They had to go with the, the poor sacrifice. They were poor. Prior to being in Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph, they were living in Nazareth, a place that had people saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, ugh. And then, you know, they had, they had that unexpected trip to Bethlehem, which probably took a toll, an even greater toll on their financial situation because it's not free to travel. And so here they are, a month and a half after Jesus is born, offering to God the sacrifice of the poor. And so what's the significance for us? Well, I believe that the Lord wants to communicate to us that we need to maintain our focus on what matters, not on what the world focuses on. And in this context, the world focuses on money. They place a heavy emphasis on money. Even some churches and some preachers place a heavy emphasis on money. And some of these people equate having money with being blessed by God. But that's not where our emphasis should be. We ought not to see the world through these lenses. I've even heard some say, some in the church say that poverty is evil. That poverty is evil. Man, Jesus must have been in big trouble then because he had no place to lay his head, is what he said. He didn't have a place to live, let alone deep pockets. So if poverty was evil, if poverty is evil, kind of calls into question the holiness of Jesus. Matthew, he was a rich tax collector, but he left his lucrative occupation in order to follow Jesus. And again, Jesus had no home. Saul was a Pharisee before he changed his name to Paul. No doubt he knew the world of luxury. These, these religious leaders, they, they knew a thing or two about that. But he left that world behind for the sake of Christ. And he did random side jobs in order to feed himself as he was preaching the gospel. It's not a sin to be poor. It's not evil to be impoverished. It's not a sin to have few resources. And also, it's not a sign of God's favor on your life if you have a lot of money. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, it says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and plunge into destruction. Does that sound like something you want? Jesus himself said that you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You're going to love and serve one and hate the other. Now, just to be clear, I'm not, pre I'm, not, I'm not promoting a pursuit of poverty. That's not what I'm promoting. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that money is evil. I want money. Like, I need it to live. You know, I, there, there are things that I need that if I want those things, I have to exchange money in order to get those things. So money is, is it's a necessity. But what I'm talking about is this weird overemphasis on money that places the value of money on par with God or even above God. It's like when people go crazy over some celebrity, you know, becoming a Christian, and they start talking about like, oh man, this is amazing. Now the kingdom of God is about to blow up. Now that this celebrity is, is following Jesus, man, Kanye is following Jesus. Man, now he's going to, Jesus, oh, Jesus, Jesus got a big win with that one. No, he didn't. God doesn't need your celebrity, and God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your name for him to be famous. His name is already above every other name. And God doesn't need your money. He has everything in this world is his. What could you possibly offer him? Make your money, you guys. Make your money. Work hard at your job. Be successful. Work your business. Do what you got to do. But don't place money on a pedestal as if it has greater value than God or as if God needs you to have a lot of money so that he can work through you. 
God is the source of all of your needs. He is our provider. If we have him, we have everything. We have everything. I was talking to somebody. They, they got a new car recently. Uh, it was a used car, but it was new. And um, so, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of looking at it. It's like, oh, man, this is a nice car. Like, congrats. Like, this is cool. Like, oh, and I was looking at all the stuff inside. I'm like, oh, look at these, these lights and buttons. Oh, wow. You know, I was just kind of like, like, I was happy for this person. And then this person was just like, it's just a car. And I was like, ah, yes. That is, the, yes. That is the right attitude to have. It's just a car. It, it, it inherently has no real value. It's a vehicle. And just before these verses in, in 1 Timothy that I was talking about, where he talks about people who, who desire to be rich, just before those verses, Paul states, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and clothing or covering, with these we shall be content. That's what Paul says. That's a totally different message from what we're hearing today. The world says you should want more. The world says you should want better, so you should go pursue your dreams. You have a lion inside of you. But God says, you already have more than you can imagine. My love is better than life itself, so pursue me. Don't pursue your dreams. Pursue me. Mary and Joseph were poor. Jesus was born into a poor family. But the economy of our Lord is way different than our economy. Way different. Way different than all the world economies. There's an account of Jesus uh, observing people putting money into the, into the tithe box. You could say the equivalent of the tithe box. They're, they're giving money to the temple. And, you know, he observes a bunch of people giving, you know, a ton of money. People are just giving a ton of money because they have a ton of money to give. And then he observes this little old lady put in two copper coins that were the equivalent of one cent. And then he declares that this little old lady, she gave more money than anyone else did that day. This is the economy of God. It's not about how much money you have or how much money you can give. It's about how much of yourself you are willing to give and the faith that is exercised through that sacrifice. That's God's economy. Now, just to reiterate, having money, being successful, it's not wrong. Go for it. Work hard. Again, be successful. Do it. But where is your heart in all of it? Where's your heart in all of it? Are you blessed because you have money? Or are you blessed because you have him? And you'll be just as blessed, if not more, if all of that money were to be taken away tomorrow. Where's your heart at? Mary and Joseph, they didn't have a lot of money, but they had Jesus, literally. So they had everything. So let's move on to our second point of the night. Losing what doesn't belong to you. Losing what doesn't belong to you. So now we're, now we're going to go back to Matthew. You know, we're in this series on the Gospel of Matthew. We just spent a week and a half not being in Matthew. Let's go back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to read... Three verses only. Man, we're going through this book slow. I'm sorry. <laughs> Everyone's going to age out by the time. We're, we're, um, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, uh, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. We'll pause there. So here we're introduced to the Magi. Uh, not much is known about the Magi because not much is written about them in the, in, in the gospel. But there are historical records of the Magi. These guys were real people and they did exist. Um, so in order to keep a very, very long story short, because I was reading about these guys, like, man, these, there's, yeah, there's, there's a history. Uh, these men were Gentiles. They were Gentiles, meaning they weren't Jewish. And they were men of religious and political importance. 
uh, wherever they were from, wherever these guys were from. The Bible doesn't say where exactly they were from. And their practices, these magi, their practices included astronomy, uh, astrology rather, uh, dream interpretations, uh, they studied sacred writings, and the pursuit of wisdom, they practiced magic, you know, and, and it, it seems pretty clear that these guys, they were not completely sold out to their idolatries, not completely. Um, but what's, what's most notable about these guys is that they were searching for the Messiah, the King of the Jews. They received a revelation from the Lord, and they responded. They responded. Similar to what we saw in the shepherds a couple of weeks ago, the Lord spoke to the shepherds, the angels spoke to the shepherds, and they went running, looking for what they were, they were told had taken place. The shepherds, they heard the voice of God. Um, I was, uh, as I told you guys, I was at a, uh, my grandfather's funeral last Friday, and leading up to the funeral, I was just like, man, I was praying. I was like, God, just give me, give, tell me who you want me to talk to. Like, I, I know me going to this funeral isn't just to go to this funeral. Like, I know you want to share the good news with somebody, if not everybody, you know? Like, so it was just like, Lord, just direct me, if, if, whatever that means. And so uh, I get to the funeral, and I'm at the, my, my grandfather was Catholic. And so, um, you know, we're at the viewing, and I'm like, ah, you know, I'm, just, I'm like, I'm searching the whole day. I'm just like, okay, where is it, God? Where is it? And um, it wasn't at the viewing. Like, it just didn't, it wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna go well. It just it wasn't appropriate. And then, um, and so then we get to the church, and you know, I'm like, okay, cool. Usually at these things, they they'll usually say like, oh, if anybody wants to share some words about, you know, this man or whatever. And I'm like, okay, cool, I'm ready. Like, if, if they do that, I'm, I'm hopping up there. I'm like, okay, the, the, this Catholic dude, he was talking about uh, Matthew, Matthew seven or Matthew six, where you know, the building the foundation on the rock instead of the sand. I'm like. Perfect, because right before that, something you didn't talk about, Mr. Catholic Deacon, is that Jesus said there's a narrow road and there's a broad road, and there are a few who find the narrow road and there are many who go on the broad road. And so I was like, okay, cool, like I already know, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna even connect it to what this guy said. So like, like they're gonna think like, oh, he's on our side, and they're like, no, you guys need to repent. And um, anyway, uh, but then I was like, uh, as, as I'm waiting, they didn't give that opportunity. And, and then even, even as I was sitting there, I was like, ah, oh, this, this just doesn't seem appropriate. Uh, the, the setting, like everyone's, I don't know, it just, didn't, it just didn't feel right. And so then we get to the reception, we get to somebody's house. And I'm still just like, all right, Lord. And then my family, they're Mexican. And so, I mean, I, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was a little bit. So I'm just sitting there, and we're, this is in the Coachella Valley. If, I knew I, I was in Coachella before it was Coachella, all right? Like, back, back when it was just dirt and, and nothing to do out there but, but kick dirt. You know, like, we, we used to go out there, and, you know, for Thanksgiving and Christmas and all these things, and, oh, it was just so stinking hot. And now people are, like, flocking to Coachella. Like, yeah, let's go. Uh, but anyway, uh, so... Yeah, I'm sitting there, it's just super hot, and, you know, and, then, and then I start seeing, like, why does it look like that guy's carrying, like, a soundboard? Like, oh, and why does that guy look like he's carrying a guitar? Oh, of course. And so, you know, the Mexicans, they brought a band out, and so, and it's, it wasn't that big of a space, you know, but, like, they didn't stop them. Like, and it always trips me out when these guys, um, they, they, like, there's a sound guy, you know? And, and, like, I know a little bit about sound, uh, just a little bit. And a lot of times these guys, you know, for those of you who have been to like a pachanga or quinceanera or something like that, you know, it's always like, you always hear the si, 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 si. And, but the, the, the thing that's, that's hilarious is that these guys are like behind the speakers. So like, like what are you listening to? Like, if, if you really want to understand what it sounds like, you need to go in front of the speakers, uh, but you're like literally standing behind the speakers, the speakers are pointing that way, si, si. So anyway, um, but I was like, okay. If, 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 they, if they get, the, and my wife, my wife and I were like, we're ready to leave. Like, it's just because it's so hot. There's no food. We're hungry. Um, and so we're just, we're ready to leave. And I'm like, okay, if they, if they get that whole thing set up, if they get mics set up before we leave, then all right, that, that, that's going to be a sign. Like, I'm, I'm ready to do it. But then the food was ready. 
And so then, you know, my wife, we hadn't eaten all day, so I was like, okay, let me, let me feed my, my family, my starving children. And so, but as, as I went to the line, my, I guess my, she's my niece, you know, there's a lot of family that you don't see off very often. So this, my niece and her boyfriend, probably like 18, 19 years old, um, they, they come up behind me, and they're like, oh, your collar is a little messed up. And I was like, I was like yeah, I know my collar's messed up. I did that on purpose because I wanted to have an excuse to talk to you. And like, our, like in, as, as the words were coming out of my mouth, it was like the Lord was like, yes, him, that's who you need to talk to. And so then I just started asking him, like, hey, man, what would you think about what the guy was talking about, you know, with the foundations on the rock and the sand? He's like, yeah, I mean, it was pretty interesting. And I was like, did you know that before that? And then I started talking about the, the narrow road and the broad road. Then I started talking about, because Jesus also says you'll, you'll know them by their fruits. There was, there, I, felt, I felt like Jesus preaching parables because there, like, um, there was like a lemon tree and a grapefruit tree in the backyard. And I was like, how do you know that that's a lemon tree? He's like, oh, because there's lemons on it. I was like, yes, exactly. How do you know that's a grapefruit tree? Because there's grapefruits on it. Like, yes. And so anyway, going into this whole thing, and, and, and this, this, this dude, this, this kid, he, he, he was started to, he kind of paused, if my memory serves me correctly, he kind of paused and he's like, hey, do you think that, like, do you think that, like, God speaks to people? And, like, I knew exactly what he meant, because he felt like the Lord was speaking to him. So he wanted to ask, like, do you think God can, can talk to people? And I was like, yes, he's talking to you right now, man. He's talking to you through me. I've been praying all week for the Lord to guide me to somebody, because somebody needed to hear this message, and he guided me to you. The Lord is speaking to you, man. And so then he, um, you know, eventually I, he subscribed to the, to the podcast and all that stuff. So Angel, if you're listening, come on, man. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Give your life to Christ. We're praying for you. All right. Can you guys give him a round of applause? A round of applause for Angel. That's for you, Angel. That's for you. All right, Pete. He's not dead. It's just, it's, he's probably asleep. You know, just rest in peace. Rest, just rest. Rest your body. Um, <laughs> anyway. Long story, uh, to talk about how the Magi, they heard the voice of the Lord. They heard God speaking, and they responded. And the Magi, being who they were, they were most likely a li- just a, a little bit familiar with Old Testament prophecy uh, and Scripture. So when they saw the star, you know, they, they headed straight for Jerusalem. They headed straight for Jerusalem to see where the king of the Jews was. And, and the way that the sentence is structured in Luke, where it says uh, that they arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? It suggests that they were walking around asking everybody. Like, as soon as they got into town, they just started asking everybody, everybody that they could. It was kind of like, well, you know, if, if we Gentiles are, are eagerly seeking this king, then, then certainly, like, the capital of the Jewish land, they're also looking, they, they know where he is. They have to know where he is. I mean, we don't even, we're not even Jews, but we're out here looking for him. They got to know. And so they're asking around, but no, you know, no, no one's really concerned. But the Magi, they finally, eventually, they get Herod's attention. Herod, they get Herod's attention. And um, Herod was actually the king of the Jews, according to Rome. And it says that, that Herod was troubled when he heard that these magi were looking for the king of the Jews um, who was just born. He's like, wait, hold up, I'm king of the Jews. Like, who are you looking for? The king of the Jews that was just born? But why was he troubled? Why was he troubled? Because this guy, not only was he crazy for power, uh, but he was just plain old crazy. Like, he, he, was, he was nuts. Uh, according to historians, uh, he was declared to be king by Rome. He was, he was placed there. Uh, he wasn't Jewish. He was actually an Edomite, which is, um, if you guys are familiar with your Bible, uh, Isaac and Rebekah, they had Jacob and Esau. They were twins. And Jacob is the chosen, the chosen people, and Esau was not chosen. Um, and so, like, Jacob and Esau. So here you have Jesus, born in the lineage of Jacob, and then you have Herod, born in the lineage of Esau. That battle is still going on. Pretty interesting. 
But anyway, he married a, Herod married a Jewish woman so that he would be more acceptable to the people. And he, he wasn't bad. Like, he wasn't all that bad. Uh, actually, we'll get to that. But, he, you know, he built theaters. He built racetracks. He built, like, entertainment areas. He, um, he even rebuilt the, the Jerusalem temple. Uh, during economic hardships, he, um, he would pay back some of the taxes that he collected so that people can, can purchase food. Uh, during, there was a great famine at one time, and he melted down some of the gold in his palace so that he can purchase food for his people. So he wasn't, like, totally bad, but he was also a nut. Uh, he was extremely jealous and suspicious of everybody. He had, two, he had two brothers-in-law, he had them killed. He had a mother-in-law, had her killed. He had a wife, had her killed. He had three sons, had them killed. Uh, all because he was paranoid. He, he, he was concerned about treason. He was married at least nine times. And a crazy thing that he did is just before he died, he got sick, and just before he died, he arrested all of the, 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 the notable people of Jerusalem, all of the, the well-liked people in Jerusalem. He had them all arrested for one purpose. So all these people... Notable people had them arrested, so everyone in Jerusalem knows these people. They love these people. So that on the day that he died, he, he ordered his people, murdered these people, execute these people on the day that I die to guarantee that there's going to be people mourning in Jerusalem on the day that I die. Like, literally had nothing to do with him. People were mourning because of the people that they love, but he wanted to make sure that people were mourning in Jerusalem when he died. Dude was crazy. He was a cruel king, and he was thirsty for power. So when the Magi, when they come asking about the king of the Jews who has just been born. Of course, he's going to be freaking out. He's crazy. That's what crazy people do. But another thing that added to the paranoia was that around this time, there was a lot of talk. There was a lot of chatter about a coming king. The Jews, they were all, they were all like, there was just a lot of talk about this coming king, this coming deliverer, the king of the Jews, and that he was going to take over. It was all over the place, this chatter. And there was also similar expectations in the, within the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, there, 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 there was talks about this golden age of Rome coming, and there was going to be this one leader who was going to rise and, and just kind of usher in the golden age of Rome. So from multiple angles, you know, there's this great expectation of a coming leader who was going to rise, and Herod was freaking out. He was troubled, which is why some believe that it says all the people in Jerusalem were troubled as well. It says that all the people were troubled with him. And because if Herod is troubled, then that can't be good for the people of Jerusalem with this crazy dude who gets all paranoid and suspicious. So everyone was troubled. But here we see the two different responses. We see two different responses to the coming of Christ. The same way that we saw two different responses a couple of weeks ago with the shepherds and the people who had gathered around Christ's birth. Here we see the Magi. They respond to the coming of Christ with joy, with anticipation, with eagerness to see this thing that God was doing. And Herod... He responded with fear and suspicion about what God was doing. The Magi, with their false beliefs and their Gentile background, they left behind all of that to pursue Christ. Herod, with his semblance of right beliefs, was not ready to lose what he thought was his. He wasn't the king of the Jews because God placed him there. He was king of the Jews because he was put there by those who weren't even authorized to put him there. He was afraid of losing something that wasn't truly his. And man, if that doesn't describe all of us in here at some point, or maybe even it describes you right now, Christ has confronted you about your need for salvation and forgiveness. But you keep turning your back on that call because you're freaking out about losing something that doesn't even truly belong to you. Is it sin that you're worried about losing? You know, you think that the party pooper Messiah is coming to take away your fun, and you don't want to give up that sin that you think is bringing you so much satisfaction, first of all, you have your relationship with your sin all twisted. You think that you're in a mutually beneficial relationship with sin, where it promises to give you some pleasure as long as you keep coming back willingly. But the fact is that you are a slave to your sin. It isn't a mutually beneficial relationship where there are your two equal partners. Sin is your pimp, and you're just out there turning tricks for your master. 
Jesus said that those who sin are slaves to sin. You are not a willing participant in your sin. You are only doing what your master is telling you to do. That sin is leading to your eventual demise. Is this what you're worried about losing, for those of you in here? In my, in my personal reading this week, I've, I started reading the book of Judges and how the promised land was finally divided between the children of Israel after it was conquered. Well, mostly conquered. Uh, half of the tribes of Israel, they failed to drive out the enemy. They failed to drive out the Canaanites who were in the land that God had given them. And it's a weird thing. it was a weird thing for me to read because you know, all throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you read that the Lord said that he would drive out their enemy from before them, that he would drive them from the lands, that he was going to clear out the land for his children. But the land wasn't clear for half of the tribes. So does that mean that God was lying? Well, no. Remember, we always have to look at the totality of Scripture when we're reading Scripture, not just isolated portions out of context. So throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Torah, every time Israel was in disobedience to the Lord, they always failed. They always got defeated. Their enemies always overcame them. But as soon as Israel turned back to God and they repented, then God would give them the victory. Even after they just got defeated, once they turned back, they went back to fight again, God gave them the victory. So when I was reading in Judges about how Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan, they failed to take possession of some of their cities, I was wondering, like, dude, what, what were they not doing? What type of disobedience were they involved in? What were they doing that kept them from gaining the ultimate victory in their land that didn't allow them to fully drive out the people? What were they holding on to that was keeping the Lord from acting on their behalf and clearing out their enemy? And so I pose the same question to everybody here. Is there something that you're holding on to? What are you holding on to? What are you clinging so tightly to that is keeping you from complete surrender to the Lord and having eternal life, ultimately? Is, is, is sin worth it? Is that sin worth it? Is compromise worth it? I know it isn't, but everybody needs to come to that conclusion on their own. What are you worried about losing by coming to Christ? I can guarantee you it's not worth it. It's better to enter heaven with one eye plucked out or one hand chopped off for holiness' sake than it is to go into hell whole. Jesus said that. And I pose the same question to those of you who are currently, maybe you're not unsaved, but maybe you're one foot in the church and one foot in the world. I pose the same question to you. What are you holding on to that is so stinking valuable that it's keeping you from living an uncompromised life in Christ? Going back to the Israelites, instead of doing what they needed to do, instead of continuing to fight to drive the enemy out, many of them, they just, they just decided to keep the people in the land and use them as forced labor, to use them as, as slave labor. They quit trying to get the enemy completely out and they settle on enslaving them. The problem with that is that it doesn't work. The Lord told them to drive out the enemy completely because if they didn't, the Lord knows his people. They're going to fall into the idolatry of the enemy that lives in their land. They're going to give their sons to the enemy's daughters, and they're going to give their daughters to the enemy's sons. They're going to intermarry, and then they're going to force their children to go into the idolatry and turn away from the Lord that saved them out of Egypt. There's no enslaving the enemy. The enemy will always bring you down, and the history of Israel showed that. So back to you. You can't make sin, the sin in your life, a slave. You can't settle on just keeping the sin around, thinking that you have it under control keeping compromise around, and whenever you so choose, you engage in the compromise, and then you put it away when you're done. You're compromising. You need to clear out the enemy from your life completely, because if you don't, it will cause problems for you down the line. It will always be a snare and cause you to turn away from your God. Worse yet, some of the Israelites, they decided to just live with the enemy in their land, not even enslave them. They're like, oh, we'll just live together. That's fine. 
You can't just live with sin in your life. You all in Christ have victory. Everybody in Christ has victory. We have the victory already. Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price. He atoned for all of our sins. He crucified all of it on the cross. Don't you dare say that there is sin in your life that the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ cannot cleanse and take away. You're doubting the power of Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for your sins, not just for yours, but also for those of the whole world. So if he's powerful enough for the whole world, he's powerful enough for yours. Again, what's keeping you from being excited about Christ? What's keeping you from being excited about Christ's coming? Like Herod, what are you afraid of losing? A relationship, a career, the false view of yourself? You're going to finally have to admit that you got problems? Whatever the case, whatever the reason, it's not worth missing out on the king who came into the world to die for your sins so that you could be forgiven and have eternal life. And for those of you in here who claim to know Christ and claim to be born again, what is keeping you from completely dying to yourself and offering up yourself completely as a holy sacrifice? This life is a vapor. It's a vapor. Before you know it, it's gone. It's over. There's this amazing illustration. I'm not going to take credit for it because I didn't come up with it. But let's just pretend that, that this cord right here represents all of time, right? And so it just, it goes all the way down, all the way into the back. It's, it's eternity. It goes on forever. It goes on forever. And our life here on this earth is right here. This little bit right here. This is our life on the earth. And then here is the rest of eternity, which could be spent with the Lord in heaven. What sins, what compromises, what activities, what relationships, what possessions, what aspirations, what desires that you have are worth doing in this section, but you're going to forfeit all of this. I don't think there's anything worth it. Nothing is worth it. Nothing. So you guys, the band can come up. If anybody has anything that they need to get rid of, surrender to the Lord, repent of, you know, it's always funny when people say, oh, something you need to get rid of, something you need to surrender. Yeah, that's nice. You need to repent. Like, what is there that you need to repent of? What, what, is, what in your life do you need to change your mind about in order to commit your life fully to the Lord? For me, it was drinking and sex, essentially. That was my life before Christ. And you couldn't convince me that the way that I was living was wrong. I loved the way that I was living. I was a party guy, drinking, again, drinking sex, all that stuff. When I heard the gospel, I was like, all right, that's cool. I agree. It makes sense. I believe it. But I love my sin a lot. Like, I just, I love what I'm doing. Like, it feels good. It makes me feel good. You know, people would always talk about, some of you guys heard me say this, some people, they would always talk about, like, yeah, the life of sin, the life of drinking, it's not great because then the next morning you're throwing up in the toilet and you're hungover. And for me, it was just like, uh, yeah, man, charge it to the game. That's, that's, just, that's just the price of living life, you know? And so that didn't affect me. Like, that didn't emotionally affect me. It's like, okay, you're not convincing me of anything. But what did convince me is the truth, the truth of God's word, that the way that I was living was wrong. And I was going to stand before him, and he was going to judge me on the way that I was living. So that's why I was like, all right, Lord, I believe it, but you need to change me. You, need, you have to, because I love my sin way too much to just give it up willingly. So God, oh, God, you need to change me. And as I kept pursuing him and kept pursuing him, he changed me. One day, I was at a family party, and my cousins were like, hey, man, you want a drink? And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, literally, I want to throw up right now. That is disgusting. A week prior... Did not feel that way. The Lord changed me. So for those of you in here, be encouraged. If there's something in your life 
that is keeping you from the Lord, from keeping you from sacrificing yourself to the Lord fully, keep pursuing him. Keep pursuing him. Do not give up. Keep praying. Keep reading. Keep fellowshipping. You know, I was in reading the book of Judges. Sorry, I'm going along, but I don't care. I was reading Judges, and, and, and it said that after all the stuff where they, they failed to drive out the Canaanites, the Lord said that he's allowing the, the, the Canaanites to remain in the land in order to test the children of Israel to see if they were going to turn from following him. So maybe there's some stuff in your life that the Lord is allowing to remain in there because he's, he's, he's testing you. Are you going to remain faithful to me? Even though that struggle is still there, even though they're still in the land, are you going to be faithful to me? Or are you going to turn from me and engage in that thing? Don't stop pursuing him. Don't stop pursuing him. Keep seeking the Lord. Let's pray.